Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Series. I'm very lucky to have a guest who I met through Remitly, one of our joint clients that uh, both this guest and I uh, enjoy working with massively. They're, they're such an inspiring group led by Matt and Josh. And um, this man is very untypical. And I've really enjoyed from the moment we started to chat about how to collaborate and give the best service we can to Remitly, we just struck it off. And also, he's a great supporter of Cornell University. And I got a Cornell University sweat top, which I wear with pride, instead of the Harvard one when I went to Harvard. So very great to have you on. Would you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm Jordan Berman. I'm the founder and CEO of OFC. We're a creative communications agency and video production studio. And I'm coming to you from beautiful Princeton, New Jersey, which is also home of that Cornell University rival, Princeton University, which I can see directly across the street. <laughs> great to be here. Yeah, and and great to have you uh, with us. And thank you, Jordan. Uh, we were talking uh, before we went on air about inspiring leaders uh, that that you, uh, when I asked you, you know, who would you think of as a couple of inspiring leaders and what qualities uh, do you admire about them? Would you like to say who you find as inspiring leaders and you'd like to give a shout out for them? Yeah, I, I really have the privilege of, of of kind of a passport into a lot of our clients and not only interviewing a lot of these executives, but helping them uh, communicate and carry out programs. Uh, one of our, our, our most important uh, partners is PepsiCo and uh, Kirk Tanner, who runs the uh, PepsiCo uh, Beverages uh, Group of North America, is just amazing how he steered the company through so much change and innovation, building incredible brands, bringing the company through COVID. Um, it's it's a real treat to be able to be a part of that extended team. And, and you know, we also have spent so much time working uh, with AT&T, my former employer, actually. And when I look at uh, Randall Stevenson, who really helped build the organization, um, just led it through so many different periods. I feel like I've I've really had a front row seat to leadership masterclasses, and that's been a real treat of of being on the creative agency side in support of these companies. Yeah, and and with Randall and with Kirk, you know, if you were to pick two or three qualities that uh, stuck with you, and you thought I I need to learn from that, perhaps I'll I'll actually uh, follow that example. What 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 qualities did, did you like, Jordan? Well, I, I think both, and, and especially, you know, Kirk, given the retail nature of PepsiCo's business, it's it's a business that's about real estate. Every inch in the grocery store, there's a battle to, to bring your products to market. And one of the things I've always loved about Kirk's style is he's in the stores, he's on locations. He really is a man of the people. And to know that the core driver of PepsiCo is building these brands, but really building relationships with their retail partners, 
that is super inspiring, especially when you've got an organization that has such a tremendous frontline workforce that are in the warehouses, they're in the trucks, they're in the stores, merchandising, selling, manufacturing, that entire go-to-market. I mean, you've got to be incredible at logistics, but you've got to be incredible storytellers. You've got to be amazing at building relationships. And PepsiCo is such an academy type of company that just, they just produce incredible leaders. Uh, and of course, I love all the beverages. So keep me hydrated. Well, that that is great. And, and the lovely thing is, Jordan, is, you know, you're the CEO yourself of your own. You founded it and you run OFC TV, which is this uh, amazing creative communications agency. But storytelling is a great love for you, as it is for me. Um, and I think... I've always sort of come into it by default in the fact that being, I think they call us neurodiverse, I'm dyslexic and dyscalculia uh, are two of the problems I have. I couldn't probably even spell either of them being uh, dyslexic as I am. But um, uh, therefore, for me, it's the it's the storytelling and it's the connecting with people that I find so special. Uh, what What got you into storytelling? Well, first of all, I've always been a consumer of entertainment and stories, and I've I've found that um, I've always wanted to know the why behind things, and and I would find that if I was only told, you know, here's the the to do, uh, or even the how, but I lacked the why, I I it was something that just I never felt truly on board, and. I've always been a curious person and I think my parents brought me up that way. But when I really understood the why and it was told to me in a way that um, had a, a journey and arc to it, that really resonates. And I think it resonates on a very fundamental human level, being around the campfire, um, you know, the way oral history is shared, how we're inspired to overcome adversity. It's through stories. I mean, what is culture? Culture is storytelling. And so for me personally, I've always been uh, just um, intrigued by stories, uh, captured by them. And it's something I've always done, but it was only relatively recently in my career that I realized, wait a second, this can be a profession. And so this, this journey of self-discovery throughout my career, leading me to where I am now, has really been me getting in touch with my inner storyteller and realizing this is a purpose. This is a vocation. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You and I were also talking about uh, American legends like General David Petraeus and Admiral Bill McRaven and and how they are both great storytellers and particularly Bill McRaven, who, as we were discussing, I'm very excited that he will uh, in the future weeks and months be coming on the podcast as a guest. Uh, thanks to David. Um, and and I, I will always remember his stories in the commencement address in 2014 um, and just the special forces experience and, you know, swimming with the sharks and and this little story about no one has yet been eaten by a shark. But if one does go for you, then turn and face it and hit it on the nose, because that's the way you got to get rid of them, because in life you're going to be circled by some sharks and you're going to have to turn and face them and deal with them. And I thought just those stories, they stay with me. And, uh, you know, his his book, Sea Stories, literally stories, it's one of his books. And then first make your bed. This, this lovely thing about, you know, first, you know, you make your bed because at the end of the day, you come back to a made bed, a bed that you made. And I mean, you can remember his stories. 
Uh, and, and it's one of the things in watching some of the videos that you and your team have produced for different people. They're just really well put together and very, uh, very much appealing and catching. Not too much stuff, but just it catches you. So congratulations. I do think you do it well. Let's talk about that life of yours. You mentioned your parents really helped you to be a curious person. Perhaps take five, 10 minutes, shape a bit of, of your life and how you become the CEO and the storyteller you are today in this creative agency. Yeah, well, well believe it or not, I, I actually live my life according to a fortune cookie. Literally, I have the fortune still in my wallet today. And that fortune is one must dare to be himself or herself, however frightening or strange that self may prove to be. And that fortune cookie actually, it opened my eyes to this idea that you know, your gut always knows kind of who you are and, and, and where you need to go, but we don't always listen to it. And, and my life and my life's journey has very much been trying to get in touch with that internal compass and actually follow it versus following expectations others have on me. Uh, and I, I like to think of my life in, in kind of three chapters, the classic story structure, the beginning, middle, I'm not at the end yet. I'll be 50 this year. Hopefully I've got plenty of story left. Um, but for me, growing up in the suburbs of New York City, I had a wonderful family. My father, Mark Berman, uh, was an accountant. Then he moved into a financial with a manufacturing company, but just a great man, very much about working hard, treating people with respect, treating everyone with respect. One of the things he did was he would uh, come together with the union and help hammer out agreements. And I remember meeting some of the union folks and he had such a great relationship with them and he was on management. And so as I was thinking about college, I came across this School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. It's like, what is this ILR school? And the ILR school was founded to bring labor and management together to, to elevate the study of the people side of business, management, organizational behavior, human resources, uh, things along those lines. And I realized this, this is a place for me. I love, I'm intrigued by the stories about business, but the human aspect is really what intrigued me. And, and growing up, I was very precocious. I was very ambitious. I wanted to do well. I wanted to work hard. And, and I even remember asking my father, you know, dad, I'd love to get a drum set. I actually played the saxophone and I wanted to get a drum set. I said, dad, would you get, would, would you and mom get me a drum set? He goes, Jordan, you'll have to buy it yourself. And I remember that seeing that as a challenge and working jobs, shoveling snow, babysitting, you know, you name it any way to, to save a little bit of money. And after about two and a half years, when I bought that drum set, my dad said, this is one of the probably most prideful moments to watch you accomplish something that took work. So I took that with me to college and believe it or not, I think I was probably even a little more intense than I needed to be. I got to Cornell and there I am with a group of students who were all the best in their high schools. They were all valid Victorians. They were president of the student government. They had played sports. And so when I got to Cornell, my initial mission was, I'm gonna prove that to myself and to others that I should be here. So I was extremely intense, very focused on my time. And graduating from Cornell, I was very excited about getting into business. And I joined a great American company, Black & Decker. 
And it was an opportunity for me to learn how business is done, learn about this, this entire industry. Now, when Home Depot was starting to expand, Black & Decker had launched this brand called DeWalt Power Tools, their professional power tool division. And I was part of this event marketing team that drove, I drove a yellow power tool van coming out of an Ivy League university. I'm in Boston. Five of my classmates were at Harvard Law School. And I was the guy driving a yellow power tool truck to their Harvard Law School parties where people would often mistake me for the plumber coming to the dorm to fix the faucet. And the humility you learn about working with men and women who use tools for a living and, and realizing that, hey, I can bring value to them and understand them. Well, I've always loved creativity and that journey from Black & Decker into the advertising agency business was something that was, was really exciting for me, understanding how do you tell a story from a brand perspective? How do you bring together a team? Because I was an account executive. My role was to be a quarterback where we had our production people, our creative people, our media people, our accounting people, and bring that together uh, to further a brand story. And then going from the advertising world into the entertainment world. I worked at Showtime, which is part of the Viacom and Paramount organization. And I was in this area in online marketing. This was 2000. So the internet was still very much in its infancy. And the exciting thing for me was to be at a television network, a cable network, but being the guy to figure out how do we exist to tell stories in a burgeoning digital era. And for me, it was about how do you translate a television experience to an interactive two-way experience on all sorts of devices. And at Showtime, where I received, I earned my MBA at NYU Stern School of Business at night, the company actually sponsored me to get my MBA. I really started thinking about innovation. And after six years at Showtime, I started to see what was happening and where the kind of digital evolution was going. And it was going mobile. It was this device. This device, the mobile phone, was, was sort of this epicenter of creativity and innovation. So I joined AT&T Mobility, which originally was called Singular. And my task was to figure, how do we tell stories uh, via video on mobile devices? And my first assignment was to build a relationship with Showtime's arch enemy, HBO or home box office. And so my first project was collaborating with HBO, uh, MTV, WWE Wrestling, Saturday Night Live, and all these incredible entertainment brands that were all trying to figure out how do we tell stories in a mobile era? And once AT&T launched the iPhone as the exclusive partner with Apple and Steve Jobs, it was an entirely new industry. So being in that kind of big bag moment where I like to call it the rule of thumb, where literally the thumb and that mobile screen are the dominant source of media for a new generation it was super exciting. Well, as I was at AT&T, I was giving a presentation at a conference and it was all about storytelling and brands and entertainment. And this, uh, this guy comes up to me after he goes, hey, Jordan, we should collaborate. And I'm like, oh, who do you work for? And he says, MTV. And I said, I've heard of MTV. Of course, I lived on MTV. I grew up on MTV as someone born in the 70s who really grew up in the 80s. MTV was youth culture. So I actually left AT&T, joined MTV to run a large group that would integrate brands into our programming and promotions. So if you're PepsiCo and you want to be a part of youth culture, we've got to not just 
bring you a 30 second spot. We've got to thread you into the fabric of the storytelling of the content. But something really interesting happened at MTV. And it was twofold. One is I realized I've got a tremendous amount of energy. I've got a tremendous amount of ideas. The culture at MTV is very particular. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting at, at that time in terms of somewhat, I'd say, a siloed approach. And I'm the type of person that really likes to work across silos, bring, bring, bring ideas, bring innovation, especially coming out of a, a mobile first company like AT&T. And at the time, MTV was still very much a cable network. I'm talking about 2010. And the second thing that happened is I saw some research that said 2 p.m. is the peak for online video and social media. And we're talking YouTube. We're talking the early days of Facebook, but MySpace. And I realized that the cat video had been conquering the coffee break. And as I looked across the 40 employees were, that were in my department, I was the senior vice president of integrated marketing at MTV. I had this group of millennials and they were all on their phones watching video during what would otherwise be a coffee break. And I had this aha moment. If I could create content that reflected the context of where people are watching these video stories, I might have the seat of a business. So I left MTV and I set out to build a storytelling company that would engage the at work audience. And there really was no such thing as the at work audience. There was the audience going to work, the commute, and then the audience going back to work. But at work was this really new phenomenon. And what it ended up happening is, ended up creating OFC around this idea of how do we inject storytelling and entertainment value into company communications? Because you're competing for your own colleagues' attention with TikTok, with YouTube, with Facebook, with Instagram, with Snapchat. And here we are. So OFC, I launched it in 2012, and we count clients like PepsiCo, AT&T, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Medtronic, Remitly, and others as our clients. Well, what, what great clients. What a great story as well. And many things uh, triggered uh, as I was listening to that. What One is uh, I relate to your intensity. Um, one of the things looking back on various generals uh, as they later became at the time was saying to me, John, just just don't be so intense. You're just, just a little calm down. And actually, uh, I don't know whether people experience this, but listening to you is like drinking from a fire hydrant. There's so much <laughs> ideas and energy and power coming out of you. So always, of course, the skill is how can you have less but more, less but better, as they would uh, they would say, because th there's so much from you, so much experience. And uh, I find... I've learned somehow to slow it down occasionally, not always. Um, I was uh, away on holiday in Dubai with my two daughters, Harriet and Brani, who were both engaged and about to get married, staying at the Hilton Hotels, which Ben Ben Guggerman, who was on the podcast a couple of episodes before you, very kindly you know, encouraged us to go there and made sure that we looked after when we were there. But uh, when Harriet gets really excited, she just speaks at double speed. And, and so we were all laughing about this and how we're just like, let's just be less intense as a family, uh, if that's possible. Um, great stories. And and the, I love the idea of the, the three episodes, the three chapters of our of our lives. I was thinking about about ours. But 
everything that happens to you is, you know, you mentioned Steve Jobs and the iPhone and AT&T, you know, he was talking when he was alive about joining our dots up in reverse when we look back on our life and how we can make sense um, and create a story. Because, of course, a story is we take a lot of data and we polish it up and we make it into something. Sometimes it has, as some politicians have a habit of doing so, like Boris Johnson in our country and Donald, the Donald in yours. They can polish the story up so much um, that um, you have to wonder whether it's at all true. As my old Sergeant Major would rudely say, sir, you can't polish a turd. Um, so I'm hoping the stories aren't necessarily that bad. But um, great stories that you, you have and, and huge experience, which you're now bringing to your clients and lucky them. Um, in, in all the experiences you've had in your almost 50 years life, Jordan, um, what would be a happiest, proudest moment in life or, or work? And what would be a darkest moment and what you learned from both of them because everything teaches us something yeah um what's been interesting for me is that both my happiest and darkest moments have kind of been at this nexus of both my personal and professional life and i think for a lot of people with ambition that want to do great things um there there is sacrifice uh in both in this idea of balance it's never a steady state it's a constant recalibration so so let me start with my happiest moment so uh in 2004 my my first i became a dad uh my my son dean was born uh that same year i graduated from the uh, part-time mba program at nyu stern uh and at that same time I, I became a producer for the first time. So I was actually working at Showtime Networks and I had an idea and I had met uh, a gentleman who had started a video syndication business where he would aggregate hundreds and thousands of websites. Uh, and he would he created this video player and the, the video player would be syndicated across all these websites. So he would aggregate this tremendous audience of millions of views. And he said, Jordan, you're at Showtime. You must know about great show ideas. I need a show that I could bring to Honda that's about young professionals because they're launching a new car called the Honda Fit, this compact car. Do you have any thoughts? Now, I had been working in corporate America for a number of years, and my life was spent in beige fabric-covered cubicles <laughs> under fluorescent lights. And I said, you know, I've got an idea for a show. Extreme Home Makeover is a very popular show. They make over your home. No one's done it in a cubicle. Imagine if I found someone who loved Paris. What if we were to turn their cubicle into the Eiffel Tower? He goes, I love it. Let's pitch it to Honda. So, of course, I told my boss at Showtime, I've got this kind of fun little side project. Is it okay if I pursue it like after hours? He goes, sure, go for it. You're a marketing guy. You're not in, in programming. So I go out to Honda's agency and I say, it's called Cube Fabulous. Defy cubicle conformity. We're going to celebrate people bringing their whole selves to work by turning their office or their workspace into an expression of who they are. They bought it. I then had to figure out, how do I create a show? I sold it. I have a budget. I have no idea how to produce a show. So I call my sister, Tammy, whose roommate was a video producer. And she says, Jordan, you have the idea and you've got the money. You can now just hire anybody to help produce it. So I brought on a, this guy, Dave Goldberg, and he, we hired this crew. 
And we had these incredible, incredibly creative people. We ended up producing a hit show. We did 18 episodes that not only Honda sponsored, we got monster.com and AOL on board. We generated millions of views. And the two young producers that we helped to bring on board ended up becoming the creators of Pawn Stars on the History Channel, Brent Montgomery and Colby Gaines. So there I was at this moment where these incredible, incredibly creative people came together to take an idea I had and actually teach me through the process how to become a producer. So this moment of coming up with the idea, pitching the idea, and then mobilizing it by bringing a team that had skills I didn't know uh, how to use, uh, where I could learn from them and the result was something even better than I thought. This all happened in 2004, the birth of my son graduation and creation of Cube Fabulous. So it was, it was really an incredible year. Now, let me go to the, 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 the flip side of that. In 2015, one of my largest clients, my, pardon me, my largest client was Darden Restaurants. Darden Restaurants is well known in the United States for Olive Garden, Capitol Grill, Yard House, Seasons 52, Bahama Breeze. They also had Red Lobster. Well, they were one of my first and most important clients. And we were taking their training videos and saying, instead of training 100,000 employees on the new recipe, why don't we create a culinary competition show called Ultimate Chef, where two test kitchen chefs compete to win the gold tongs of victory under the watchful eye of your executive chef. So we were doing incredibly creative work that was effective at engaging and inspiring their employees. Well, their entire board was wiped out by uh, Starboard uh, Ventures, a hedge fund, an activist investor. The CEO, uh, Clarence Otis, was, was resigned. And the team had to cut $100 million of cost. My budget was slashed. So there I was doing incredible work with an amazing client, iconic in the casual dining industry. And in 2015, my budget went from hundreds of thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. Mm. At that same point, I've always been a very involved father. And I just overextended myself. I was coaching Little League Baseball. I was coaching basketball. Even though I don't know how to tie a rope knot, like David Petraeus, I became the cup master for my son's Cub Scout troop. Of course, I was very good at making s'mores and rallying the boys and doing uh, camp, camp outs. But I had basically completely overextended myself. And that same year, my father was diagnosed not only with Parkinson's, but with Louis, Louis body dementia. Parkinson's and Louis, Louis body dementia, that was the exact same diagnosis as my comedy hero, Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. And we were told what to expect. We were told a lack of mobility, a lack of muscle control, and then a deterioration of, of the mind. Um, and my father had fallen in a store and that precipitated this diagnosis. Uh, the, the, the combination of anesthesia and the surgery, in a sense, it almost kind of hit a reset. And he really started this downward spiral. And this, this is a hero of mine. This, this is a man who believed in me, always told me to go for it. He was very conservative in his life. He was an accountant. He worked in finance, very much kind of in the box as a thinker, but very creative as a musician but professionally took very few risks. And 
my mother, who was really beset by a heavy depression uh, when, when this happened, I realized I had to step up. And, and it wasn't just I had to step up. I realized this was my opportunity to repay my father to to be there to help him. And I've got two brothers and a sister. I'm one of four. But I've always been a bit of the leader of our family. And I remember getting together, and, and I get emotional thinking about it, but getting together my my brothers and my sister, telling them, we have to be strong for dad. We have to be strong for mom. Because I had my own company, even though it was struggling and really at the precipice of not even making it, I realized I could actually work from my dad's hospital room. He was actually in a rehab center for several months. So I would actually spend all my days with my dad, going with him to physical therapy, going to neurologists. I then, when he came back home, I knew he didn't want to live in a home. And he was 70 years old. I knew he didn't want to be in, in some type of home. And so I arranged to get him help at home. I spent probably three or four days of every week at my parents' home being my dad's champion and, and realizing that my wife would have to shoulder the burden with our, our two children who were about 11 and seven at the time. And finally, my father kept getting uh, more ill uh, and, and we realized he needed to be in a home where he had 24 seven medical care. And, and I, I said to my dad at this point, you know, his memory was severely affected, his understanding of events, but he had moments of lucidity. I remember telling my dad, I said, dad, uh, I need you. We need you to get better. We need better care for you. So I found a, a rehab center and home where you'll have the care you need. And he signed the documentation. And, and I wasn't quite sure if he even knew really what was happening. When we brought him there, I had to wheel him into this sort of television room with a, much, a lot of much older folks, most of whom were women. And I leaned down to give him a kiss and a hug. And I said, you know, dad, I'll be here tomorrow. And he said to me, he goes, Jordan, I guess this is the end of the road for me. And wow. at that moment, I realized he knew exactly where he was. Mm. He passed away one month later. Wow. And I felt incredibly guilty about bringing him into this home where he was going to get the attention he deserved. But what I, what I, my wife helped me realize, because I felt incredibly guilty, was that I had kept him at home all that time. And it was only the last month where he really needed that attention that that he he had to be in a home, and it just took it took a while for me to kind of forgive myself for you know not being able to save him, mm. and and realizing that there are things I can control, there are things I can't control, and so I, I I learned to be at peace with that, and and believe it or not, while Olive Garden from a professional standpoint, Olive Garden ended up going away. About two months after my father passed away, I got a call from Pepsi and AT&T. We're both like, we've been sitting on some proposals from you, and we think you're really on to something. We really love the work you've done with uh, Olive Garden and Unilever. You know, can you come to our headquarters and can can we confirm a budget? And I said, well, <laughs> it was like, there is a God. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so OMC, my personal life and and my you know my my wife was just so strong throughout the whole thing, but you know, that, that being able to navigate life when life throws you, you know, challenges you don't think you can handle, you don't think you're prepared to handle. If you stay in the game, if you stay in the fight, things things will change. And and I that's what I found about business and in life. Stay stay in the fight because it it, it the tide is going to turn 
if you give it a chance. Yeah. Wow. What a what a tough time to go through. And also this resonates with my own life uh, and my wife, Lee, um, in that we had Marguerite, Lee's mother, my mother-in-law, living with us here in we're in Lincolnshire in this home uh, for the last three years of her life. And we didn't want her to go into a nursing home. And she had heart disease, lungs disease. She had cancer and she had Alzheimer's. And um, it was very hard. And I really relate to you uh, for that last month, having looked after him all that time for that last month to realize it was the end of the road that we think they're going to live forever. Um, and of course, they are going to have to get to die at some stage. And I'm a great stoic philosopher philosophy practitioner and they talk about living a good life and a good death mm. uh, and it's very hard that that uh, I've, I've listened to a number of audio books uh, and the, there's a lot for us to learn about preparing for death as if like it's not going to happen to me it's going to happen to everybody else but I'm not going to die like mm. what get a life get real but yeah. get a life get be prepared to get get a death Mm -hmm. And I know that with my brother Graham, who got um, savagely attacked and, and almost died from uh, some severe knife wounds through multiple organs by a, a psychopath who attacked him, that we talked about my other brother, David, who, who died a, a year ago, and he was only three years older than me. And uh, Graham went, Jonathan, he hasn't gone. He hasn't, uh, you know... He, you know, he's not with us anymore. People use this language to try and hide the fact he has died and we don't want to admit it. So it's almost like, uh, I lost my brother. Like, like, is he in the garden somewhere? Have you just like left him in the amusement arcade or in the supermarket? No, no, he's died. And and I, I found that quite brutal, but actually quite a reality check. So Sharing that tough story about your father with both Lewy body and Parkinson's disease, and uh, you know, relating with Marguerite, who who um, who had, as I say, Alzheimer's, and you just know it's only going one way. It's it's not going to reverse. And my mother had um, a, a major stroke and ended up in the nursing home where she had been to visit all the 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 people who were there, and she ended up in the nursing home that my brothers and I. Um, had her in the same nursing home, but it was tough for her. Uh, and and I think facing up to that, some some of those dark moments, but it does teach us a lot. You're right, Jordan. It teaches a lot about the appropriate amount of resilience. Sometimes people are so resilient that they think they can have it all, be it all, do it all, and you can't. And mm -hmm. someone once said, you know, everything is life is possible. If you're prepared to one, pay the price and two, live with the consequences. But I have seen time and again, both in my own life and the life of other very intense, very driven people, there is a cost to pay. And sometimes the cost is too high and you have to stop, recalibrate and go, is this worth it? And, you know, in your particular case, you know, two children, young children, three to four years apart and a wife who is supporting you and the business. And, and, and I think sometimes it is about the like the book Essentialism by Greg McEwen um about about just tempering what you do and saying no to some stuff in order to say yes to your own health to your family um so that's just some thoughts which are triggered and thank you for that let's go on to my next thought which was 
there you got some uh some some sons um i i think you said son or was it son and daughter i couldn't hear two boys yeah two, two boys, boys dean yeah. and eight yeah what age are they now so uh 18 and 15 perfect time so if you went back to visit yourself at that age bracket 15 to 18 what bit of advice would you say now jordan i've come back from the future i'm giving you some advice from my experience this matters this doesn't what would be your advice growing up i was very much a type a perfectionist and and i still have those tendencies and it, in fact it, it reminds me you talk about commencement speeches so conan o'brien uh, the comedian did a great just a wonderful commencement speech uh, at harvard university his alma mater and, and he says you know here you are it's as if you're all wearing white tuxedos and you never want them to get dirty. That's not how to live life. Life, in my, in my words, is a laboratory. And, and I've learned that. Uh, I think it, 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 growing up, especially in high school, wanting to get into a top university. And when I was in the university, thinking I might want to go to graduate school, I've got to have this perfect record. I've got to have a great GPA. I've got to, you know, you know, check all the boxes and there was a lot of fear of making a mistake and stepping off the right path um and so i always felt a tremendous amount of pressure not to mess up and yet as an adult what i've learned is that the learning happens when you do fail uh, the learning happens when you make a fool of yourself maybe you you, you fall down you dust yourself off and it's even something I've learned as an adult practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. A friend of mine opened up a jiu-jitsu studio. And he says, Jordan, uh, I just opened this studio. His name is Mike Leonardi. It's part of Gracie Baja, uh, Braz you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I wanted to support him. I said, I'll join. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? And I felt like a toddler. It's a grappling sport. And I felt like a toddler. I had no idea what I was doing. I felt like I was a fool. And I remember I would do anything uh, to stop myself from being tapped out, either so in putting me in a choke move or an arm bar. And I remember Mike sat me down and he said, Jordan, the mat is a place where you want to experiment. There's no winning at practice. Practice is where you need to experiment, where you should take the risks that you might not otherwise do in, say, a competition. And, and that is really what life is. Life is being willing to make mistakes and learn from them and try not to duplicate those mistakes. But if you're not, if you're not failing, you're not learning and you're certainly not stretching yourself. So the, the thing I would tell my, my sons, or I would tell a, a young version of me, maybe with a little less salt in my hair is it's okay to fail. In fact, it's good to fail. Don't go through life avoiding failure, seek it out because otherwise you're, you're not really becoming who you can be. Uh, beautifully put. And also I resonate because uh, Gracie Barra, the jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is what my wife and my daughter, uh, Alana, do. And uh, Alana is tiny. She's a wee thing. But she would be like a monkey spider, be crawling all over <laughs> uh, her mom. Lee and the, and Lee couldn't sort of shake her off and there were these grappling and chokes and all sorts uh and then uh Alana fought with a lady who was slightly bigger than her 
and um, she actually fell on her baddest thing and broke her broke her ankle, I think. So um, it, it was just going to happen in any kind of sport you do, whether it's skiing. A friend of mine's uh, broken his pelvis skiing and things like that. Skiing is very dangerous, but uh, great fun. Um, uh, but they they absolutely loved it. Um, and it was only the fact that it was so far away, the centre. They were thinking of setting up their own centre here in our in our town. Um, but they never got around to doing that. One of those many things, oh, good idea, let's do this. Um, but well done on, on doing the jujitsu. And, and you're so right. Uh, there was a, another of my leaders said, uh, you know, I learned so much from my mistakes. I think I'll go make a few more. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll yeah, yeah uh, if, if looking back at your life so far and uh, you're only in the uh, second or the third chapter so far, because um, if you can live the hundred year life, depending on whether how much processed food and how much sugary drink you do have with all your clients. Um, but if we um, do you know that 93 percent. Uh, of Americans uh, metabolically unhealthy because of the, the, the standard American diet that we've been having since the 60s, if not before that. So something needs to be done. Perhaps that's your next thing, Jordan. Is is, is and they're, they're on it, by the way. They're they're making healthier products. So. I hope they are. I hope they are. <laughs> but um, I, I like Dr. Mark Hyman, who I want to get onto this series. I think he's very interesting about um, yeah. uh, functional functional medicine. It's a whole interesting area. But if there was one thing you could change in your life, you could live your life again, or if there was a crucible moment, what, which one would you perhaps share with uh, everybody listening? College for me was, uh, was, was, was certainly a crucible. It was certainly a test. And what's interesting is my, my oldest son, Dean, recently got accepted to college and he'll be going to St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and incredibly excited for him, uh, especially since he um, he has Asperger's. So he's uh, he, he's a, a very bright kid, super motivated, but he has his challenges, uh, especially from a communication standpoint. Um, and and when I look back at my life, I realize that, uh, especially in college, you know that level of intensity I brought. Um, I've, I've, I have a continuing um, journey of, of calibrating it. In fact, I, I'm a big fan of, of quotations. And one of my favorite quotes is, you know, man does not spontaneously combust. He must light himself on fire. And, and I look at that as, you know, you, you've got to um, inspire yourself. You cannot wait for the moment to strike and suddenly everything's perfect and you've got an idea and you're going to run with it. You really have to kind of create the spark yourself. Um, but at the same point, if you're ambitious, if you want to do something great, uh, and I think of like a David Goggins or a Jocko Willink, some of these mm. incredible uh, you know, military leaders who are incredible motivators, balance sort of falls to the wayside. And, and that is can be dangerous in terms of building a great life. You may achieve great things, but you, you're likely not going to build a great life. And for me, it's been about how do I ignite myself and be my true self, bring my energy, my ideas, my enthusiasm, uh, but don't burn myself out in the process. Mm. And, and I think during the COVID era, you saw a lot of people coming to grips with that. People working 24-7 at home, 
uh, app work on every device and, and in a connected age, you know, the advice uh, and, and things I would probably change a little bit is I'd probably get more sleep and I am getting more sleep. Mm-hmm. I would maybe be better to myself. I have a bit of a, uh, a maniacal work ethic and that has been rewarded in business. That has been rewarded in school, but it isn't necessarily rewarded uh, in, in life, mental health, relationships, etc. So for me, the kind of unbounded energy and enthusiasm that it, it, it you you really need to give yourself a break and and temper that be kinder to yourself because i can drive myself tougher longer stronger than anyone externally ever could and it's that self-regulation to realize i i need to have someone to love i need to have something something to hope for and i need to to have something to do and and all those three things are critical yeah i think you definitely need a good coach and uh here's here's willow who's going to join us on this podcast <laughs> that's your coach yeah she could she could hear your dog barking in the background she's going hey can i join this podcast <laughs> she's um she's just five months old she's a working cocker and uh she Beauty. loves she loves to be a film star so perhaps we'll have to have her on some of the some of the shots but in all seriousness um it is one of the things that both i i try and live by example myself uh in getting that sense of balance uh but also i think it's the the thing that some of my coaching clients have appreciated more than anything is bringing that sense of the whole the integrated as opposed to the disintegrated life where all the elements of what i call the inspired leadership compass which we're going to be talking about now are you you get you get each of them covered to a, a to a sufficient level where you can focus on what you're really good at so let's go around them uh, very briefly we've just just quick fire questions here jordan um moral quotient your your true north living life according to values I, I i don't want to hear what your what your specific ones are but when you found you've slipped off your moral compass your true north what have you done one thing you've done to bring yourself back on to true north as far as your moral quotient goes it's funny um my my moral compass is i want to be a good guy uh, there, there's an amazing book, uh, Cormac McCarthy, uh, called The Road, which was made into a movie with uh, Viggo Morgensen. And um, in it, it's a story of a father and his young son. And they have to traverse this apocalyptic landscape. And the father really has to do anything to save his son. And at one point, the son asks his dad and he says, Dad, are we, are we the good guys? And his dad said, yes, we're the good guys. And and to me, being a good guy is is being generous it's it's being optimistic uh, and, and positive and it's it's giving people the benefit of the data and and really working so that everyone can win and and what i've found is that uh, i i have a competitive spirit and i want to win and and i have to really balance that with hey especially in the world of business we all want to provide for our families we all want to do great work um and so really what I've tried to do is is always uh, kind of counterbalance that competitive spirit with, hey, am I being a good person? Uh, is OFC being a good organization so that by people interacting with me and my team and our company, are they going to be better off because of that? And so even my competitors, I'll be at conferences. I've actually 
we may create a highlight video at a leadership conference. I'll invite my competitors to stand in front of the camera because I want to learn from them as well. We, to me, if you're successful, you can actually increase the size of the pie. It's not just about getting my piece and getting a bigger percentage. I think you truly, if you're adding value, you can increase the value to everyone. There doesn't have to be always a winner and a loser. Spot on. Never work with children or animals, they always say. At the moment, I have a one-year-old and a two-year-old grandchild living with us at the moment for a few months and a, a five-month-old puppy. So that was quite funny. Thank you, Jordan, for, for just being with us. Um, Certainly. I, I think I love that whole idea of, of, you know, the road, the good guys, what you do, getting yourself back on track. What about uh, a sense of meaning and purpose? That's the second of the eight components that I found make people inspire leaders. What would you say um, gives your life in a, in a, almost in a sentence, what gives your life meaning and purpose, Jordan? Yeah. I, I love surfacing stories from unconventional perspectives um, as a storyteller, I've worked in a lot of different companies where, where I've helped tell stories, whether it's Showtime, the cable network, whether it was MTV, whether it was uh, in the advertising industry. Um, and I've been involved in all sorts of content creation, but I love stories that help people realize they can be more than they even think they are. And we, we've, we've launched a project uh, recently called Dropping Knowledge. And dropping knowledge is all about inspiring underrepresented middle school and high school students, largely black and, and Hispanic students in the United States, about how they can invent the future by pursuing STEM concepts, science, technology, engineering, math, and careers. And, and there, is a, there is a major representation issue in the U.S. when technology companies are trying to have a representative workforce that reflects uh, the, the, the nation. There are not enough diverse engineers, data analysts, computer scientists. And so for me, creating dropping knowledge, which in its essence is bringing, is connecting the dots from the things young people love, fashion, video games, uh, uh, music, and connecting those dots to the technologies and the science that enables them then you see an aha moment. And that's the type of storytelling I love, impacting people uh, in positive ways. Yeah, it's lovely. And, and that's why it's so nice connecting you with Lee, with her charity for vulnerable girls going through abuse, modern day slavery, trafficking, and mental health issues. And thank you for, for the connection uh, that you've set up there. Health is the next. Uh, brain health and physical health. I mean, there you saw the shocker of what happened to your father. And what we're now being told, of course, is that we actually have much more control over our brain health and our physical health than we actually gave ourselves credit. Oh, it's in the gene. Nothing I can do about it. But epigenetics and um, the, the food that we eat, the sleep that we have, the exercise that we do has a massive difference on us. So if there's two tips that you'd give us from you personally, Jordan, that you found has helped you now, now you've had that bit of a a shocker with with your father. I'm really sad and sorry for you, what you had to go through. Uh, I know I learned a lot from both my mother and my mother-in-law dying and, and the way that they died uh, and, and the impact of the life, their lifestyle that it had on, on their um, 
they say that that we really want our health span to match our lifespan but sadly too many people their lifespan um has a certain point but their health span has ended some 15 to 10 years beforehand so top tip on each very quickly what would you say jordan yeah the first one is building exercise as a habit every morning i wake up i knock out 40 push-ups in a row and then I say the word overtime and I do another 10 <laughs> every single morning. If I'm feeling bad, good, indifferent, I knock them out. And then the other thing I do from a health perspective is anytime, which is all the time, I have a challenging work project. I jump on my mountain bike and I just ride through the mud, the sleet, the snow, whatever. And when I push myself physically, not only do I get those endorphins pumping but any work issue I had, whether it was a conflict with a client, immediately disappears because I just put my body through a trial, uh, going up the largest hill I could find, the muddiest bog I could go through. That's one piece, uh, uh, exercise as a habit. Hmm. And then the second one is get yourself a dog. My dog happens to be in my office right now, sleeping on the couch. And a lot of people think getting a puppy is like getting a baby. It's not. It's like getting a fitness instructor that you can cuddle with whenever you want. I love walking with my dog. I love hiking with my dog. And there are times when I see my dog laying down and I'm like, you know, what? I'm just going to lay down right next to my dog. My son said the most brilliant thing ever. This is my 18 year old son, Dean, when he was younger, he said, dad, I really love Kayla so much. I'm like, what do you love about Kayla? Kayla's our dog. He says, dad, she doesn't care about anything. And, and this was when my son, who I mentioned has Asperger's, was really having a tough time fitting in at middle school. And, and we got this dog and she was just loyal. She'd lay in his bed right next to him. Doesn't matter how tough things are, no judgment, just love. And of course, I love the idea that, you know, we've got to really be the people our dog thinks we are. I love that. No, and, and we got two. And uh, giving Archie, who's the older, two and a half, uh and and every day two walks a day you know my wife and i had a run along the canal this morning we got into a bit of a habit of doing this we get up first thing and half an hour later we're in the car drive down to the canal and have a run along don't have to be very far but just along the canal and then back you know in the morning frost it was just beautiful and it, you're so right you can't you can't ignore a dog if you're really a proper human you can't ignore the dog they need that exercise and they need the company and you know, uh, just as we had there with Willow, who was telling me, hey, I need to go out. You know, you can't just ignore it. because Otherwise, with a puppy, you'll end up with a little gift that you never planned on. And Jonathan, uh, is there anything more humbling than having to clean up after your dog, no matter oh, yeah. what accomplishments you have? It was George. It was George Bush who said, you know, here I am. I've finished being president. And what I'm doing is I'm collecting poop in the garden. He said, it's a good leveler. I love that one. Um, we'll just uh, dip into um, emotional intelligence. Uh, we'll leave out the other ones because we've had so many good chats already. We'll then look at executive teams, your favorite book and your top tip. So emotional and social intelligence. Um, it, it is interesting when we have children who have certain uh, neurodiverse issues. Sometimes we, the parents, uh, have some of the similar traits, like we might be fully intense or, or all in or whatever it might be. How have you developed emotional and social intelligence, reading your own emotions, reading others, such as your, your sons, and, and reading the environment, when sometimes we can be so intense that we miss certain subtle cues, particularly 
from our partners who often go, you're so busy with work that you've forgotten me. So what's what's <laughs> been your, there? What's your top tip? I thought you might. I reckon I, I resemble that remark. All right. Yeah. Um, my, my- what's your tip? Yeah. So, so, so as both a husband of 22 years, my wife, Elizabeth, who, by the way, runs human resources for the parent company of the uh, 76ers NBA basketball team and the New Jersey Devils hockey team. So she's got an incredible career. Uh, my relationship with her and being the father of two teenagers, really being able to listen. I can talk. I love to st- tell stories, but listening. Wow. That can be really difficult and really hearing what people are saying and 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 avoiding the jump to a solution. Because what I've seen is so often people just want to be heard. They need to be heard. And, and, and really, the most effective you can be isn't always identifying the right answer. It's often asking the right question. And I found that if I can ask the right question of my sons, even of my wife or my team, that's 90% of leadership right there. Yeah, it's so true. And in fact, one of the uh, the most special moments, there's been many special moments in my own life, was just recently taking my two daughters, Harriet and Bradley, who are 28, uh, 29 and 28, um, to Dubai. We just got back last night uh, for four nights. And it was my way of just saying, I love you, I'm your dad. Uh, Lee, my wife said, look, you go with them and, and go and have a, a special time. Um, and we got a son and a daughter, Lee's son and daughter. So we married, we brought two children each. She said, go and have a special time with them because they're both getting married this year. And um, it's going to be a really sort of special way. Or rather, they've got engaged. One's getting married this year. One may get married at some stage. Hasn't yet decided when that time's going to be. But um, it was really special time. And what they said was the fact that you're there for them and you listen to them. And I'm still working on not interrupting <laughs> <laughs> and there's Nancy Klein's book, who's my she's my great mentor, Nancy. She's an American lady who's now in her in her 70s. And her book is called The Promise. And the long version of the book is the promise that changes everything. I won't interrupt you. And and it's work in progress all our lives, Jordan, because in your enthusiasm to share your idea or my idea, we'd love to jump in and finish off your sentence or tell you something else or Pip what you've done if you're a type A personality like you and I are. And let me let me get an even better story than your story. And I've got another story. And, and we just like, just shut the F up and listen. Um, so I love the one that you're working on that too, because gosh, I am too. Um, executive teams, your top tip for how do you create a high performing team when you've got a toxic team? What, what have you done in, in, in a nutshell? Yeah, I, I think culture is everything. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations may have a articulated group of values, but it's only a value if you hire, fire, and promote based on them. And, and really, if you tolerate behavior, that's that's what you're valuing, if you tolerate it. And so throughout my career, I've always tried to uh, – be direct in a very, uh, you know, human uh, and gentle way. But when there are challenges and when people aren't aware of behaviors, maybe no one uh, you know, brought it up to them. And that happens all the time where, well, they're a good performer. They're smart. What I find is if I'm helping a leader develop, if I'm coaching a leader, 
they need that honesty that there's always growing and improvement. And so I've had conversations that aren't easy to have to say, you may think you're being direct, you're being negative, you're being cynical. Um, if someone is allowing bad behavior, hey, it's not that you're just allowing it. In a sense, you're defining the behavior that's acceptable, and we can't do that. And there's always that short-term pain of ripping the Band-Aid off, but the long-term benefit is is always worth it. Yeah, so so great advice, really great advice. Um, uh, penultimate one is your favorite book on leadership and why you recommend that one. And then we'll go into, I'll ask you to introduce yourself again, and we'll do the two-minute top leadership tip. So favorite book, which one are you choosing? So I have one of my favorite books right here, which is The Agenda Mover by Samuel Backrack, who is a mentor of mine uh, and a professor emeritus at Cornell University. He actually uh, was my teacher when I was 18 years old. He taught organizational behavior. And this book is all about pragmatic leadership because a pragmatic leader uh, breaks organizational inertia. Companies get stuck. And what Sam talks about there are really two things a great leader does. It's around discovery and it's about delivery. In discovery, it's about understanding the environment and it's also about developing ideas. But on the delivery, you've got to mobilize people. So there's an aspect of being able to navigate a political environment and then you've got to sustain momentum through managerial capability. So The Agenda Mover by Sam Bacharach, love it, super practical, highly recommend it. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Jordan, would you just introduce yourself? Tell us what your organization does and give us your two-minute top leadership tip. Hi, I'm Jordan Berman. I'm the founder and CEO of OFC. We're a creative communications agency and video production studio that injects entertainment and storytelling into critical business initiatives. My top tip for leadership is the idea that attitude aces ability. And it's based on my one of my favorite bands of all time, The Clash. And the story goes that Mick Jones, who was the lead guitarist and founder of the band, was looking for a bass guitarist. And he's at this club in London, and he sees this guy who has the right attitude, who has the right integrity, the right creativity. And his name is Paul Simonon. And he goes up to Paul and he says, Paul, I'm looking for a new bass player of, of my band. And Paul says, I'm in. There's only one problem. I, I don't know how to play the bass. And Mick says, don't worry about that. We'll figure out how to teach you the bass. He literally teaches Paul the very specific fret uh, hand positioning to record their first album. Paul didn't even know how to play the bass when he recorded. He just knew the hand movements. Paul went on to become an incredible bassist, an iconic member of the class who named the band, as well as created their signature look and style and is even on the cover of the London Calling album where he's smashing his Fender guitar, which is probably the most iconic image in punk rock music. So attitude aces ability. Hire for attitude, and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, I love that one. Your attitude defines your altitude was an old uh, comment from my general. And, and thank you, Jordan. I've thoroughly enjoyed that, and I'm sure everybody takes a lot from your stories and from your experience. And I wish you every success. People are very lucky if they get you and your creative agency working with them. So thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and an honor, Jonathan. Much appreciated. 
So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>